following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me, please, to the very first words of Scripture, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses, and then we will skip down to verse 24. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let the earth, now in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the field according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given them every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. 497 years ago, this coming Friday, October 31st, 1517, that was the date, a young 33-year-old priest, monk, a teacher of sacred theology at Wittenberg University in Saxony, strode with determination to the castle church, carrying in his hand a roll of paper, a hammer, and some nails. The announcement that he tacked up on the church door, the community bulletin board, was a summons and the announcement of a scholarly debate 
It was written in Latin. It laid out 95 objections that Luther was making to the teaching and practice of the Roman church. He followed protocol in all of this. He sent a copy to his superior, the Bishop of Brandenburg, and another copy to the man who was responsible for the selling of indulgences across Europe. Academic debates are common on university campuses, and probably Luther did not expect that this particular debate would garner much support. But Luther was very serious in his objections to what the church was teaching and practicing. A few months or years before, as he was, pre- as he was preparing his sermons, or his lectures for his students, Luther's eye stumbled upon one line in the first chapter of the book of Romans. It was verse 17. It says this, The righteous man shall live by faith. This idea that salvation does not come by our own good deeds or by our own piety, but rather it comes by the grace of God as God's gift to be received by faith, by placing one's trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This idea is not strange to us. We've grown up with it and we believe it. But for Luther on this moment, it was like a bolt of lightning. Its energy surged through his mind and heart and soul. And in an instant, his life was transformed. And then came Johann Tetzel. The background of Tetzel's arrival was that in Rome, as is very common in building programs, they had run out of money for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. Pope Leo X came up with a wonderful idea for raising the necessary funds. He commissioned a number of salesmen to go throughout the Holy Roman Empire and to sell indulgences. An indulgence is merely a piece of paper. It expresses the fact that the bearer has been forgiven and is free from the temporal consequences of any sins that he may have committed. This infuriated Luther as Tetzel arrived. Tetzel was the salesman of the year. If there had been such a thing as the trip to Hawaii, he would have won it that year. He had a jingle, a slogan that he used to great effect. It said, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory into heaven springs. And he was selling indulgences like mad. And Luther was incensed. Furious would be a better word. For the people of his parish were coming to the church, brandishing their piece of paper, declaring that they did not need to repent because they had already paid, oftentimes at great personal expense, they had paid for their forgiveness. So as Luther pounded the nails into the church door. It was a drumbeat, declaring what Scripture teaches. Salvation is free. God's Word says so. And that 
beat let loose a powerful force that soon swept across Europe and changed the entire world. Today I want to talk with you about the power of God's Word. We live at the present moment in an age when in the West and in America in particular, the power of the Word of God is thought to have faded away. People take the Bible for granted. They don't bother to listen to it. They do not think themselves obligated to obey what it commands. A very recent example has taken place in Houston, Texas. There, the mayor, Mayor Parker, and the Houston City Council have adopted an ordinance called the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance Hero. It gives unequal equal rights to homosexuals. And among its provisions is the fact that a man who considers himself a woman may walk into any ladies' restroom in the city of Houston free and no one can stop him. Parents, think what that would mean for your daughters if they were alone in a restroom and a strange man begins to lurk around there. How would you feel? That's what was going on. The mayor and the city council have assumed that the opposition they began to get from area pastors would soon pass away. It didn't. The pastors filed suit, and as a part of the discovery process, the court subpoenaed the sermons, and other communications, anything that the pastors might have said against the ordinance or against the mayor or against homosexuality. And that's where it stands at the moment. The expectation that the pastors would lie down, that the Bible would be of no account, that God's Word doesn't matter and that nobody cares, that's what we're facing in our country today in all places, in all parts of our land. So the question is, has the Bible lost its power? I would like you to turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the book of Genesis. I literally want you to pick it up and take it from the pew in front of you and open it up to Genesis chapter 1. This is a very familiar passage. You have read it many, many times or heard it read. But I want you to look at it again today to see it, to listen to it, to feel it, because I want to look with you at the power and the force of God's Word. It begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then chapter 1 and chapter 2 move through step by step the process of the creation. Focus particularly with me now on verse 3. This is a very significant verse because these are the first recorded words spoken in the universe. Undoubtedly, there had been other words before this, but these are the first ones written down. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light. This simple sentence is important because these four words teach us a number of things about God. 
First of all, these four words teach us that God is eternal, that he existed before his creation. Secondly, it teaches us that God is self-existent. There are a number, any number of things that we depend upon for existence, but God doesn't. He is outside them all, and therefore there is nothing which can bend or shape him. Third, God is unchanging. Nothing can affect him at all. Fourth, God is distinct from his creation. Unlike the modern pagan philosophy that has overtaken our age, it says all things ultimately are one. But the word of God says that God and his creation are two. And then fifth, more than all these insights, it tells us that God is a rational God and an intelligent being. And then sixth, it tells us that God operates according to a plan, that he directs and controls everything that happens. And then seventh, even more, this short sentence declares that God is a God of language, a God of words, a God who communicates. But beyond all of these things that it tells us about, ourself, about God, it tells us several things about ourselves as well tells us that we are rational beings. It tells us that God has given to us the gift of language so that we can speak and communicate. It tells us that God desires to communicate with us and that by his words we are able to understand and by implication that we can speak and God hears us and understands us. David cries out with the assurance of faith, Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And isn't that exactly what our hearts long for when sorrows overwhelm us or when problems sweep upon us that are greater than we are able to manage? Don't we desire from the deepest parts of our being to cry out and say, Oh God, Hear me when I call out to you and speak to me that I may know that I am not alone and that I may be comforted. But now let's take one step farther. Verse 3 goes on. It says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. What is this? It's cause and effect. You've had the experience like I have of being in a pitch black room, feeling around on the wall, trying to locate the light switch. And when your fingers touch the plastic of the cover plate and you feel the switch protruding a bit, you throw it up and the whole room is full of light and you can see, unless the bulb is burned out. That's cause and effect. But when we look at God turning on the lights, there is something very different going on here. For example, we ask the question, what is light? And the answer that we get back is one that only quantum physicists can understand. They tell us on one hand that light is energy, that it exists as particles 
gathered in the clumps called photons. And yet at the same time, light is also electromagnetic waves. And these two things are mutually exclusive. We don't begin to understand how they fit together. We can't even understand what light is. And yet we know it when we see it, don't we? So God speaks. And one moment there's nothing. One moment there is pitch blackness darker than anything you can imagine. And in the next moment, as the voice of God utters the command, all of these things of creation come together, some mysterious working, and the lights turn on all over the world. God says, let there be light. And there is light. Don't even try to understand it. But marvel in the impact and the power and the force of this simple sentence by God, this command. Now notice in this whole process of creation, the same phenomenon is repeated all the way through chapter 1. Verse 6 says, then God said. Verse 9 says, then God said. Verse 11 says, then God said, and where there was nothing, suddenly something is. Water and atmosphere, dirt and rocks, plants and trees shooting up. And it goes on, and finally we come to verse 26. And verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our own image. And the human being is created. Voice of God. Words. Words with meaning. Words with power and force. And things happen. Do you believe this? Do you believe this is the way it happened? Probably most of us do. But those who do not believe it would say that these words in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are a kind of poetry expressing what we don't really know about. But if you believe it, then we ask ourselves this question. How did we get this information? Well, the simple and traditional answer is that it came from Moses. And I believe that there is good and profound evidence that says that Moses indeed wrote these words or his secretaries wrote it at his dictation. So the question now becomes, how did Moses get these, this account? Well, was Moses a philosopher? Did he, did he walk out in one of those desert nights as Israel camped in the wilderness and look up at the stars in all of their glory and ponder and say, how did all this come to be? And he came up with this poetic, philosophical conception of the creation and of origins. Is that what happened? I don't think so. Or alternatively, did God dictate this story to Moses, much like he did the Ten Commandments? I don't think that's it either. Rather, there is a much simpler explanation of how we came to have this information. And that is that this story, this account, 
was carefully transmitted and handed down generation to generation to generation, going all the way back to the people who were in on the foundation of the creation, back to Adam and Eve themselves. But if you're sharp, you're asking a question already. Wait a minute. Adam and Eve came in at the end of the creation, so how did they know about those things which took place before they were created? Did they wake up on that first morning and look around them and say, hmm, I wonder how all this came to be? Did they just invent it as a plausible explanation that made sense to them? Don't think so. Skip down to verse 28. It says, And God blessed the man and the woman and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. You see, here are words of God once again. This time, though, it's a conversation. We know that Adam and Eve answered back to God a little bit later on. But God here is teaching them what they needed to know about life in this world. He's giving them explanations about how things work and how they are to live and to behave. This is education. And while we have many quotations from God that are recorded here in these first two chapters, I dare say to you that there was a lot more that God spoke to them and that they discussed together than is actually recorded verbatim here. So what we have, and it becomes clear the more you think about it, is that the story of creation that we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is what God told Adam and Eve about. And they told it to their children and their children to their children and their children to their children. All the way down to Moses, it was orally transmitted very carefully, and Moses took that story that they all knew so well, and he simply wrote it down. Well, you say, that's a nice thought to have. But how do you know that that's really the true way that it came about? The answer is that there is proof right in this text that that's it. Go back up to verse 26 once again. This is an important verse because we have clear Hebrew words translated carefully into English to give us the nuances of the Hebrew. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Why is this significant? Because of the plural pronouns. Stop and think for a moment. How would we expect this sentence to read? We would expect it to say, Then God said, Let me make man in my image according to my likeness. But it doesn't say that. The plural is given here. And so what we have here is a foreshadowing of the doctrine that would be delivered, that developed throughout the Old Testament and clearly delineated in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what's here. It's consistent with what further revelation would give. Think about the gods of the peoples of the earth. Go back to the gods of the Greeks and the Romans 
to Zeus and Apollo and Diana and Pan and Mercury. Go back to the gods of the ancient Egyptians, to Isis and Osiris. Go to the modern gods of the Hindus in India, to Brahman, Shiva, Krishna, Vishnu, and the 330 million other gods that they have. Or take the new kid on the block, the God invented by the Muslims in the 600s, Allah. Every one of them, when you examine who that God is, has a human form. They're superhuman. They have superhuman powers. And they also have human personalities and all the warts and foibles that human beings have. They are capricious and nasty and ugly. And it's very obvious when you look at it that what people simply did was to look at us as human beings and project outward to what they thought a God should be. But not this God, not the God of the Bible. Who in the world could ever imagine something so unable to be understood? You don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand it, yet we know it's true. But what we have here is something that no human mind could have imagined. The only thing that could have happened was that God revealed himself to Adam and Eve in the form of the Trinity. And that becomes the proof that this account is true. And by it, the implication that all of Scripture is true. This becomes the proof that the God of the Bible is the true God. Now listen to what the Word of God says about itself. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good deed. Jesus said, your word is truth. Jesus said, my words shall not pass away. Isaiah 55, 11 says, my word that goes forth from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. My friends, this is what Martin Luther set loose upon the world that day in October 1517. Within two weeks, his 95 theses had spread across Germany. Within two months, they had spread across Europe. Within two and a half months, it had been translated into German, printed up, and distributed widely among the people. Two and a half years later, Pope Leo X attempted to stifle what was happening and to silence what Luther was saying, to silence the Word of God. He declared it all heresy. But it was too late. At the end of January 1521, the Imperial Diet convened in the city of Worms in Germany. It was ruled over by the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Charles V. Luther was summoned. He appeared before the the, the church 
on, and, and the, the nation on the 17th of April. Johann von Eck, the presiding officer, pointed to a table on which were stacked Luther's books and writings. And he said to him, Luther, are you ready now to deny what you have written? Will you recant? At stake, hanging in the balance, was Luther's life. 24 hours to compose his answer. He came back before them on April 18th, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He stood there and declared to the princes of the church and the realm, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Amen. This was the force, the Word of God, that was now loose in the world, and it changed everything. Within a matter of years, it brought Europe to its knees. It jumped the English Channel and brought the English and the Scots to bow before the Word of God. It was carried with the pilgrims to North America 100 years later, and it conquered a continent. As the British Empire spread out across all the earth, so the Word of God spread to every corner of the globe. For 500 years, the Word of God has been the prime shaper of Western culture, of our own nation, And it has affected everything that we believe and every way that we live, our laws, the way we are governed, our economy, everything. Until this present generation, which has slipped away. But the Word of God has not lost its power. Do you realize the force that you are holding literally in your hands right now In this book that we call the Bible, it can and will change your life. Read it. Study it. Pass it on. It can and will preserve your children and your grandchildren to eternal life. Read it to them. Drill it into their minds. Don't let them live without it. It can bring revival to the church in America in our time. This flaccid, weak, vacillating, heretical church all around us. And it is able to bring entire countries to bow before Jesus Christ. Even if you dare to believe it, the Muslim millions who today are shackled in utter darkness And in hate, they can be set free by the very power of this Word of God. And this Word itself promises us that there will come a day when because of the Word of God, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May it come quickly. Lord Jesus.
Amen.